You have accessed 2.1, a Netrunner Reboot Project podcast. Episode 4, Please Stay Connected. Hey, this is Remy. Our opening theme, Please Stay Connected, is from the flavor text for Anonymous Tip, a zero-cost NBN operation that lets you draw three cards. The art is a prominently a vert display, right? It's got these like sort of three-dimensional holographic uh, displays attached to it. There are a bunch of numbers. We see off to the side a shadowy figure walking away, and there's rain falling. And the flavor text says, Please stay connected. Priority transfer in progress. An operator will shortly verify... I'm not entirely sure what's going on with this card, like what the the theme behind it is. I guess maybe somebody who's tipping off the corp to something, but like secretly, I guess anonymously, right? The card does help the corp, so that must be what it is. Well, there's no overall theme this week, as we've had the last couple of weeks. There is a lengthy segment on the 2012 World Championship Final, a little bit of an analysis of that match, if you're interested in that, and uh, you know, just a mixed bag of a bunch of other things. For our first segment this time around, we're going to do a little breaking news. I don't normally like to put the intense reboot project stuff here at the top, but if it's time sensitive, I feel like this is the best place for it. So the time sensitivity comes from a couple of the leagues that are going on. Now, again, all of this involves going to the Discord for the reboot project, but you can join the Constructed League, which is starting on Monday, May 29th. So that's a week from when this episode is posted. Here's what uh, Zaley has said. He's the one who's, uh, they're the one who's running it. He says, anyone who's interested is welcome. The league takes place over five rounds, each with a week to a week and a half of runtime, and a top cut of four that leads to the exciting grand finals. Come test your own decks built using the entirety of the reboot card pool, or take a dip in the pond with a modified, pre-constructed deck to see what others are playing. Rules are as follows. One, decks are built with all legal reboot cards, including Reflections Booster Pack. Standard deck building rules apply. Two, if you're winning, keep playing with the same deck. Whenever you lose, feel free to change deck slots or even build a new deck. And three, decks from the pre-constructed league are legal and welcome for anyone who doesn't know what to build or would rather net deck. And the pre-constructed decks even have some suggestions on how to pilot them. So if you go to the Reboot Discord server, you can join that constructed league. One of the other leagues is the LCG-style league. And here is what Dunch97 has to say about that. This one also is starting 
Monday, May 29th. And here, the legal card pool is just the core set, Genesis cycle, creation and control, and the spin cycle. So what the LCG-style league does is it adds a little bit more uh, for each round or each month or two whenever there's a new round. And it says you're free to change your decks throughout the league. And then there's some instructions on how uh, you can play for that. For that matter, the 2.1 league game group, I think of it more as a game group than a league because there's no uh, there's not enough not enough people currently participating in an organized fashion to generate a league from it. But it follows the pace of this podcast. So it's only core set right now in the 2.1 channel. And uh, each month, we'll be adding a data pack. So come the 1st of June, what lies ahead will become legal for the 2.1 group. So that is the breaking news for... Uh, various leagues going on with the Reboot Project on the Discord server. This anonymous tip for this week is when not to play cards. It's maybe a strange thing to think. Uh, You know, it's a card game. The natural thing to think is I should then therefore play cards And in traditional card games, like using a standard deck of playing cards, naturally, you know, pretty much every turn, if you're playing, say, a trick-taking game or anything like that, that is the game, playing cards. But a Netrunner is more similar to a board game than it is to a card game, as you're building a board and you're taking certain actions with your board. And that's why sometimes you don't want to play cards. One obvious time that that's true as the runner is when you're holding an icebreaker, but there is no ice of that type rezzed. What's the advantage of not playing a card in that situation? Well, this gets into the mind games mindset of Netrunner. There's always hidden information, such a big part of the game. So there's always this push and pull between what the corp knows what the runner knows, what they don't know. If the corp doesn't know that you have the tool to break their ice, well, then perhaps when you go to run on that ice, you can cost them a little money. Another time when it might be a good idea not to play cards, when it will actually just slow you down. Think about a situation where you only have seven credits and you play toolbox. You have no other means of gaining more money, and maybe you have no icebreakers installed. Well, you don't really need the toolbox installed right now, right? You'd be better off holding onto that money and spending it on something you can use rather than something that's going to set you back a bunch of money and you're not going to be able to use. Playing diesel when you already have a full hand of cards you want. Just hold on to that diesel until later. Playing tinkering on a turn when you're not intending to run much. Playing resources when you already have tags. Playing sure gamble when you're early on in the game and you have 15 credits already and maybe you're playing against NBN. NBN has closed accounts. Don't have a bunch of money necessarily against them. These are just some examples 
of, you know, sometimes we have this mindset, again, we want to play cards. It's a card game. So, well, what am I going to do? I, I can play this card. Sometimes it's better just to hold on to that card. As the runner, go make a run instead. Of course, there are exceptions to these rules. For example, if the icebreaker that you have in your hand is a killer, maybe go ahead and play that card because the sentries are the ones that can mess you up. Or if you're playing against Jinteki and there's a danger of net damage coming out of nowhere, if they score an agenda, for example, well, maybe play that card that's really important to your game plan. If it's the winning turn, well, go ahead and play that tinkering if you're only going to make one run, if that run's going to win you the game. I know those are a bunch of Shaper examples, I understand, but uh, Shaper is the corp that I'm the, uh, the brown that I'm the most comfortable with. And remember uh, that cards are also hit points, right? So holding on to cards, even if they're cards you want and don't want to lose, uh, better to lose the cards than to lose the game. So against any corp, you need to be thinking about your, your hit points. And the same can hold true, perhaps to a little lesser degree, for the corp. Uh, for example, just playing out another piece of ice in the early game, when the runner has no breakers, well, would your time be better spent, if the runner has no breakers, installing an agenda and scoring some points? Uh, installing ice that the runner can break for free or cheap, like if the runner has yog out. Is spending an extra two or three credits to install another Enigma in that server? What's the point, right? Because they're going to break it for free. Or if you're criminal, or playing against criminal, rather, and your, your HQ is not very secure, is that the time to play a hedge fund? So that the criminal can come along and just take all that money with their account siphon? Or, and this is maybe just a misplay, playing a biotic labor to give yourself an extra click and then clicking for four credits. Uh, that just doesn't make sense. Of course, as always, there's exceptions. If, if it's your plan to have that much money with your hedge fund or if you're going to be spending the money, uh, whatever. But just bearing in mind that you don't always have to play a card. It can improve your play in the game. The sure gamble for this time around is Stimhack. It is an Anarch event, a run event, that costs zero and also is only one influence. And that's kind of a key point here. Here is the text on the card. Place nine credits on this event, then run any server. During that run, hosted credits are considered to be in your credit pool. When the run ends, suffer one brain damage, which cannot be prevented. A lot of new runners, not a lot of new players might look at this as like, why in the world would I want to intentionally take a brain damage? But this just helps you to see that nine credits is a lot. And when are you going to use this? Well, you're probably going to use this when you're almost definitely going to be scoring an agenda. So an agenda, often worth the suffering the brain damage. It's really, Stimhack is probably the anarchiest anarch card in the core set. Just this is the sort of thing that anarchs are willing to do to get the job done. And so any anarch 
should have this card in their deck. But really, it's, it's a good option for many decks, even as a one-of. Something that you don't necessarily need to see until the end of the game or toward the end of the game. Even in Criminal or Shaper. Because it's just really powerful to have no money in your credit pool. And the Corp thinks they have an opportunity to go score something. And then, boom, with the play of one card, you gain nine credits and then make a run. That's a very powerful option. And as I said, the key is, it only costs one influence. So if you're ever building a deck, and you have already spent 14 of your influence for Cater, 16 of it for Gabe, for example, you're like, well, what can I use just one influence on? Why not Stimhack? It's a good option. Experiential data. Should you build your own deck when you're new to Netrunner? Some people never want to build their own deck. That's not the part of the game that interests them. Some people are all about building decks, even if they're never going to play them. And next week, we will definitely get into more on deck building and and more tips on deck building. But veterans often say that before trying to deck build, it's better to net deck, that is to get a deck off the internet, and figure out what a good deck looks like. Because that way, when you're playing the game, and if the deck is not working, you know that the problem is you (laughs) and not the deck. Whereas if you build the deck yourself and don't really know what you're doing exactly, maybe the problem is you just built a bad deck. So knowing, using a known good deck can be very useful in building your skills early on in playing the game. And so to that end, we're going to talk about the 2012 World's First Place Deck. Now, some caveats at the top. Worlds in 2012 was in November, so the game had been out for a couple months, and there were no other data packs that had been released yet, so it's core set only. That's part of the reason I picked it, obviously. However, there were only 41 players in the tournament, and the winner, Jeremy Zwern, had only been playing for two weeks, (laughs) and uh, the guy he was playing against had also only been playing for a couple of weeks. So, on the one hand, Is this a good deck? I mean, it was good enough to win a 41-player tournament. But take that with a grain of salt, I guess is my point. So I'm going to run through the decks first. And here they are. The runner side is Gabe, a 45-card deck with basically half the cards being events. Three account siphon, three easy mark, three forged activation orders, three infiltration, three inside job, three special order, three sure gamble, and one stim hack. For hardware, just three Desperado, the count the console. Seven resources, three Armitage code busting, two bank job, two crash space, just six icebreakers, two Corroder, two Femme Fatale, one Ninja, one Yogg.0. 
So only taking in one uh, decoder. And for other programs, seven of those, three data sucker, three parasite, one sneak door beta. His corp deck was a Wayland deck, 49 cards with 11 agendas, three hostile takeover, two posted bounty, two priority requisition, three private security force, five assets, three Melange Mining Corp, two Snare, coming in from Genteki, the just one upgrade, a corporate troubleshooter from HB, 11 operations, two archived memories from HB, three Beanstalk royalties, three Hedge Fund, three Scorched Earth, nine Barriers, three Hadrian's Wall, three Ice Wall, three Wall of Static, just three Code Gates, three Enigma, the only, so he didn't import any Code Gates from other factions, just went with only a few, and nine Sentries, three Archer pulled from, no, Archer is Wayland, three Data Raven pulled from NVN, and three Shadow. Now those decks I have posted on DB, so you can go take a look at them. Though you should note that with the adjustments made to Gabe, he actually has two extra influence you could use. And with the adjustment made to Posted Bounty, that Wayland deck is not actually legal. There's too many agenda points in the deck. But I posted it as is and figured if you wanted to give it a run, make the adjustments you need to yourself. Uh, the obvious thing to do would be, I think, to pull... Uh, well, you could almost pull two of the hostile takeover. No, maybe there'd be 48 cards. Maybe just pull a private security force, because that's kind of hard to score anyway. Anyway, the uh, there is video of the match available. It was played over three games, because due to the way the scoring rules worked at the time, you... If I'm remembering correctly, they took your actual score, how many points you scored, and then whoever won just was automatically given 10 points. That was the way of balancing the fact that maybe you get a flat line as the corp. So there were three games because they tied on points on the first two games. And video of all three is on YouTube with commentary from Team Covenant that was posted a few months later after they had actually uh, done the tournament. And I'll also post links to the Board Game Geek thread that I'm going to be reading from. All of that's in the show notes. So, spoiler alert, if you're intending to watch the video, you should stop listening to this segment now and just skip ahead to uh, the ad break. But if you're still here, here is what the uh, original poster, Angrist, had to say about the match. Uh, he apparently watched it uh, before the Team Covenant videos were posted, just watched the, the Twitch. Uh, the Justin TV link is actually what it is. It's pretty old. And then, from memory, created this post. Jeremy, eventual winner, was playing Criminal and Wayland versus Ben, playing Criminal and Haas Bioroid. I missed the first part of Game 1, but I'll give the details of the rest of the match. Game 1. Jeremy was playing criminal in the first game and got flatlined after being 6-3 up on agendas. It was a long game. Let me just insert. Yes, it was. The video is an hour and a half. And the corp had massive rows of ice. Jeremy made a run on the main remote server, 
hoping it was an agenda he could score for the wind. But it was a Project Junebug, with two advancement counters on it, and he got flatlined. Still, the six points he scored from that game mattered towards the final result, so it was 10-6 to Ben after Game 1. Game 2. Game 2 was another long game in which Ben managed to score some early agenda points with a bit of luck. The Corp servers were very well protected with ice, and Jeremy also had a ton of credits for most of the game, at one point having around 25 or more. It was a tense finish, and during one turn Jeremy accidentally installed a wrong card in his main remote server, which ended up being really bad for him. He meant to install an agenda, either a private security force or priority requisition, but installed a piece of ice instead. Ben then ran on Jeremy's hand and ended up scoring the agenda that Jeremy meant to install. Jeremy looked at his unresed card and realized that he had installed the wrong card and consulted the judge. Since it was an ice, he ended up returning to his hand and the game went on. So again, as an aside, I think according to the later tournament rules, that would have been a game loss, right? Because he installed a piece of card incorrectly. Towards the end of the game, it was 6-3 in Ben's favor, but during one of his runs, he encountered a data raven, which ended up giving him a tag. Ben ended up passing the turn with a tag, despite forgetting to use a decoy to get rid of it. In Jeremy's next turn, he trashed Ben's crash space, since he had a tag, and then cast double scorched earth, flatlining the runner. The game ended exactly the same way as the first, with the corpse scoring 10-6. So, it was on to Game 3. Game 3. Ben won the dice roll to decide which faction to play. After some thought, he chose to play as the corp. He said later on in the interview that he thought Jeremy's Wayland deck was worse for him to face. In either case, it was another really long game, but Jeremy was basically in the driver's seat throughout. He managed to score two early agendas and was on five points for a long time. I believe it was five points, but either way, he only needed to score one more agenda to win. Ben, despite building up a lot of ice, was behind for most of the game, but managed to score an agenda. Jeremy was frequently making runs whenever he had enough credits, but didn't manage to score another agenda for a long time. In fact, he hit two snare on two separate occasions which went off. Ben had two pad campaigns installed in unprotected servers. But for the first half of the game, he didn't install any sequences of ice to protect a remote server where he could score his agendas. He only managed to do this later on, where the row of ice ended up being some five ice deep. Both players were kind of waiting for Ben to draw into agendas because despite all of Jeremy's runs on Ben's hand and deck, they were all non-agendas. Jeremy also installed a sneak door beta after the opening phase of the game and managed to get a few runs at Ben's hand through his archive. Eventually, Ben installed a card in his main remote server. Jeremy used infiltration to reveal it to be an experiential data. Later on, Ben trashed it to install another card, which he advanced twice. After Jeremy declined to run on that server, Ben trashed that card, which I believe was Project Junebug, to install something else. After so many runs during on Ben's hand and deck during the game, at the end, Jeremy finally managed to hit a winning agenda on a run on R&D. It was a truly epic match, 
and I believe that the better player won in the end. Jeremy played at an extremely high quality throughout and only made one real mistake in Game 2, where he installed an illegal card. He said it would cost him the game at the time, but he still managed to win the game due to a mistake on Ben's part, where he could have gotten rid of a tag. While Jeremy played quite slowly, the match was untimed, so it was fair enough. The stakes were pretty high, after all. Ben wasn't bad, but I felt he played rather less accurately, precisely, than his opponent. It could be that Jeremy's sheer determination wore him down after four straight hours of play. The match proved how good a game Netrunner is for competitive play. You guys should watch the coverage of the match if you haven't already. Anyway, thanks for reading. I apologize for any errors. I was, I was just writing this all down from memory. So, here are some comments from other people that were made in the thread. Uh, Salva Sleaze, username I am Salvation, had some uh, criticism for the players. Jeremy lost the first game mainly because his run was a mistake, in my humble opinion. Even if this was an agenda, Ben would have won by scoring, scoring this, so why run without drawing up first? He had seen Junebugs before in that match. The second game was lost just because of a stupid mistake. Really? Two decoys, a crash space, and two actions left after the run, and he does not get rid of the tag? Ben installed a femme, targeting Hadrian's wall on archives, then wants to trash Sneak Door because he was over MU limit. Okay, he then realized that this would be stupid, but did not just change trashing to trashing Ninja, as Femme is a sentry breaker too. No, he changed the target of Femme, targeting a shadow. WTF? Shadow is a sentinel. Well, you know, a sentry. Femme can break it for two with her normal abilities. Why did he target that? Everything else would have been more useful. Card knowledge. One of them asked for a ruling on Femme and Tollbooth. In the third game, both played criminals, got to the finals and did not know that Femme is the best counter to Tollbooth? Why did they even bother playing Femme then? I would understand this if it was the Icebreaker tournament where no one knew the cards and the game, but for World's Finals, I was disappointed by the quality of play. Sorry to say that. Defending this is user Asgard12. The game is still new. Having played Jeremy at Worlds, I can say he mentioned he had only been playing the game for two weeks. People make mistakes. We had a draw because of some I made. I can agree that it looks really clumsy, and I wish I had been in the finals, but these guys had better tournament scores, and that's how it works. Secondly, I know you guys wouldn't realize this from watching a video, but after playing for eight hours the night before, and being up way later than anticipated, and having what ended up being an extremely long day in a loud room, stress sets in. I admire these guys for dealing with that pressure, even if they made mistakes. So I'd encourage people to reserve their critical judgments of players at this point, unless they are fully aware of the conditions. If you weren't there, and you feel you could have done better than these guys, well, you should have tried to. How many world championship games have you played with an onlooking crowd of 50-plus with cameras watching your every move, which will be broadcast over the internet for any backseat player to criticize? Ben Marsh, the runner-up, user BD Marsh, uh, came on and made this comment. I just want to take a moment to congratulate Jeremy. He was an excellent opponent 
and a super nice guy. I look forward to playing him again. I would also like to take a second to offer a few words in our defense. First of all, we were both exhausted. He installed incorrectly and forgot about my tag. I forgot about my tag because we were so drained. Also, both of us have only been playing for two weeks. Are we the top two players in the world? Who knows? Parenthetical comment from me. Uh, no, probably not. If you want to find out, come down and play us next year. It was a great event with a lot of great and friendly players. Special thanks to FFG for running a great event, and thanks to all of my opponents we gave, who gave me a bunch of fun, hard-fought games. Congrats again, Jeremy. And then he posted his deck list there in the thread. And uh, Jeremy's Wern came on, his username Dwarven Pony. And he said this, Thanks everyone for the kind words, and especially to Ben for being a great guy and competitor. But ben is spot on. The pressure and fatigue took its toll on us, and it showed. But most of all, both of us have been playing this game for only two weeks. I'm sorry if I disappointed anyone with my unpolished play skill, but I feel it turned out to be a truly epic match. I realize this wasn't a true world championships, but I played against some formidable players from Germany, Los Angeles, Oklahoma, and Iowa. I don't consider myself the world champ, just the winner of a sizable tournament full of quality players. And then here is his comment on the match as posted on the Fantasy Flights uh, website, their news. The Android Netrunner final was the most intense and grueling match I've ever played. The first game of the four-hour finals was truly epic. I believe I ran on Ben's HQ and R&D 15 consecutive times without finding an agenda. By the time I found six points worth of agendas, I was out of gas. I only had enough credits to break through one of his servers. After he installed a card and advanced it twice, I made my move. I guessed it was a priority requisition, but I ended up getting bit by a fatal June bug. We both made severe mistakes during Game 2, and I was very fortunate to win it. We then played a sudden-death final game to determine a champion. I scored a quick five agenda points and focused on breaking through his R&D. As the game progressed, he began to stabilize, but I managed to find the last agenda sitting on top of his deck for the victory. So, that is the end of the report. Again, if you want to watch these matches, or if you want to read the full thread, or see the runner-up deck lists, go ahead and check out the show notes. Tonight on NBN, join Lily Lockwell live from Sansan as she covers the latest breaking news. Then, are your pets trying to kill you? Troubling new information you won't want to miss. All this and more after the game. NBN, all the news you need to know. No Lemuria Codecracker segment this time around because I've covered all the cards from the core set. So it'll be the next first data pack when that comes around that we'll be getting that one back in but we do have a little bit of a matrix analyzer but we do have the big boys comments that he provided to me about the nerfs made to the nbn and wayland cards in the core set and in case i haven't said it often enough it's the big boy abram jop who is the one who is the brains behind the reboot project he's the one that's been doing the work or spearheading the effort anyway he has lots of people who are giving him feedback and contributions. 
Um, but over the last few years, uh, he's the one that's really been the brains behind it. I've only come across it here in the last couple of months. So please don't assume that because I'm doing this podcast, I'm the one who's behind the project. That is not true. Anyway, let's look at what he has to say. Starting with AstroScript Pilot Program, which now the token cannot be added to a card installed this turn. He says, This change removes the Astro train from the game, while still allowing NBN to still have a 3-2 agenda with a fairly strong ability. So, just as an aside, you know, he referred to that as a 3-2 agenda. I've always referred to it the other way around. I've always said 2-3. And so, I apologize in advance if I can't get that straight, because I know, like, the community as a whole, that's how they, they sort of format it. Three advancement, two points. That just feels backwards in my head. So, I will try to refer to agendas that way. I make no guarantees, though. Uh, breaking news. Another agenda, which had its tags reduced from two to one. Remember, I speculated that maybe it had to do with an upcoming card exchange of information. He said, no, it's really 99% for this. This removes the ability to activate traffic accident with breaking news, which makes it a lot more expensive and a lot less common to get a flatline with it early in the game. So, what's traffic accident? It is a Wayland operation from Order and Chaos. That's the third deluxe expansion, so we're not going to get to that for a while. It reads this way. Play only if the runner has at least two tags due to meat damage. So imagine this situation uh, before breaking news was adjusted. You have a breaking news on the table that you've installed and advanced twice, so you can score it on the next turn. On your next turn, you score the breaking news, give the runner two tags. You then play traffic accident and hit them for two. And then maybe you play another traffic accident and hit them for two more. And then if you have a third one, I guess you could do that three times and then boom, the game is over on turn two. So that's not quite as easy to pull off. Of course, you could also do some shenanigans with uh, archive memories. If you just have one traffic accident and an archive memories, you could still hit get off four damage. So that's the uh, thing that he's trying to avoid here with the change. San San City Grid. Trash costs reduced from 5 to 4. He says, The tempo loss of trashing an unresed San San for 5 is massive, and something the corp could force the runner to incur multiple times a game. It shouldn't be that costly to interact with such a powerful effect. And yet, as we have seen before, just one cost change of just one is sufficient to effect a significant change. And Scorched Earth, the Wayland operation that blows up a building, its influence raised from four to five, he says, this change makes it harder to run Scorch out of NBN. We would like the majority of Scorched Earth decks to be Wayland decks. And that's true, because if your uh, NBN deck has 15 influence and you spend all 15 on three Scorched Earth, well, what else are you spending your influence on? The Maker's Eye is where we take a look at the visual component of Netrunner. And typically, I will probably focus on artists, but this time, 
I came across a thread, uh, again, going back to the early days of the game, about the design of the cards. Now, here I don't mean the design as in the design of the mechanisms on the card that affect the game being played, but rather what they look like. Now, as I mentioned, uh, I've been playing the game since it came out, right? I, I first played my first game like September 10th of 2012. And right away, you notice that there are things that set the cards apart, right? You notice that the criminal cards are blue, for example, and the Junteki cards are red. You also probably have noticed that there's a faint logo in the background of the text box. But did you notice all of these other things that are also going on that really serve to differentiate the cards either between types or between factions? And before I get into the descriptions about these things, one easy way to take a look at the different cards is just to go to the reteki.fun uh, site and go to the deck builder, and then you can just sort by cards over there. And that's an easy way to see a bunch of cards grouped together. For example, uh, this, this, uh, I'm pulling this from this thread by Ben Finkel. His username is Azeltir, A-Z-E-L-T-I-R. And then I've also inserted some comments here and there. He says, the background for the runner's text boxes. Shapers have grids, criminals have horizontal lines, and anarchs have staticky noise. On hardware, you can see a fan in the upper right, and the screen for the card art has a little crack in the bottom right. Another user, uh, Jakob Kurchina, username Gaseki, said, and one more thing, sockets on the left of the card. Feels like there could be some expansion board going in or something. For resources, uh, Ben says, the text panel looks like a sheaf of file folders, and the right margin looks like some sort of awful minority report sci-fi interface. You know, the pretty but probably completely unusable kind. He didn't comment on the programs, but I will. There are hexagons all over it. Right? There's hexagons in the text box in the background, and around the edges, the frame of the artwork has all of these hexagons that are color-coded for the factions. Back to Ben. Events. Here's where you see some real differences. This is pretty interesting. Look at that wire on the right and how it changes between factions. Clean and simple for neutral. Pretty beads for shaper. Black and professional for criminal. And duct-taped for, for anarchs who also have scuffs and a broken LED. There's like a, on, and on a, on a event card, there are two little LED lights on the upper right side. And yeah, the one for the Anarchs, one of them is, is out. <laughs> I'll also point out that art windows are different for each type, like you know, what the, the frame of the artwork is. Like an event is sort of oval on one side, but then open on the left. Programs are vaguely rectangular with those hexagons making the borders. Hardware is more squared off. Resource is mostly rectangular, and then the, that folder design that he mentioned that looks like the text panels, like a sheaf of file folders, well, that sticks up into the top of the artwork and sort of makes this design that makes it clear uh, that it's a resource. 
But if anything, the corp cards are even more distinctive. Uh, ben says Jinteki has a floral print strip on its cards and a background that's supposed to be bamboo. HB has neat circuitry. Wayland has W-like spikes and wireframe building shapes. And NBN has unending streams of data on various monitors. I'll comment on the art window. Each type has a different window here, too. The agenda is a circle, kind of circular. The asset is vaguely squarish, but has uneven borders. Operations are sort of, uh, the border is at this little bit of an angle. It's cut at a slight angle. Uh, I'll talk about that more in a second. The upgrades, uh, most of the ta top half of the card has these jutting angular lines that come up. And I noticed, well, I'll talk about that in a second, too. And the ice is mostly just square. Back to Ben's comments. For agendas, here the corp flavor illustration gets the most room as the art bubble leaves a pretty wide margin on the left. So if you want to see some of these different designs, that's an easy place to see them. For operations, I don't know what the border is supposed to signify here. The ridges on the middle right make the orientation of the art somewhat comic book-like, you know, in those action cuts where the borders get diagonal. And so there you see this design. Uh, and so you just kind of like on the runner resources. There are the folder design, and here you have this uh, curved ridge design. I'm not sure. Again, I don't know what that's. It's just some kind of chrome-like design. Going back to Ben, assets provide space for a variation on the motifs. Most drastically, Jinteki has a bambooish vibe on its assets. For upgrades, the corp flavorings drop out here. What's weird to me is that the lever on the left, is at different positions for different corps. Weird. Yeah, of course, I never noticed that before either. I'll also point out that the full art or alt art cards that you can see on uh, Riteki make it clear that those jutting angular lines I talked about are a key part of the design, and you're supposed to notice that, well, that makes it an upgrade because on those cards where the text box is much smaller, it's mainly just art, it's still got that little angular uh, design right next to the text box to show you like, hey, this is an upgrade. I'll also point out the ice also has hexagons on it, like runner programs. That's one way in which both sides are the same. The ice and the icebreakers and the other programs uh, have these hexagons, which is a subtle indication that these things are designed to work together. And in fact, hexagons, right? They fit together. They make a design. I noticed, too, that the text boxes also have different borders around them. HB has like a, a single line of circuitry. Jinteki has this floral pattern. NBN has these weird polyomino-type shapes. I mean, is that maybe punch, what, punch cards? Maybe they look kind of like punch cards a little bit, maybe. And Wayland has some kind of uh, stylized design. I'm not certain what that's supposed to be. Another commenter in the thread, Ryan Hackle, named... Uh, co uh, username, codename, username Cerulean, talked about the bar that separates the card type from the sub and the subtype from the rest of the text box. So even here, there are subtle distinctions. For the corpse, for HB, it's a line of circuitry. For Jinteki, he calls it a natural motif, like a twig or a sapling. NBN is a PowerPoint or CNN-style fading line. And Wayland uses surveyor's markings whereas neutral cards are just a stylized line. 
On the runner's side, Anarch has dashed diagonal racing stripes, criminal a two-faced double line, and shaper coarse dashes suggesting stitching or construction, whereas neutral is similar to the criminal one, but it's a solid line. I mean, when I came across this thread, I thought, that's crazy. Like, how, how could all of those variations possibly have been there, and I've just never noticed it before? Or maybe, maybe you're only ever supposed to notice it subconsciously, you know, like... Uh, you realize like your brain is telling you when you glance at a card, you see all of these variations. Or maybe it's designed partly for colorblindness so that a person can pick out all these subtle distinctions to differentiate between the different uh, factions. But I thought it was really interesting, so I thought I'd want to share it. Enigma. Let's take a look at the flavor text for one of the cards in the game. This will be Sea Source, a, an NBN operation that costs two. It's two influence. You can only play it if the runner made a successful run on their last turn. And the effect is a trace, strength three. If successful, give the runner one tag. Here is the flavor text. The sea tipped us off to some suspicious data spikes up by the castle. Jerome Locke, On Duty Tech. In the artwork, you see two people seated in some sort of futuristic chairs, both looking out a curved window in the background, Earth at some distance away, and then there's this curving tendril that reaches out from the surface up to the, where the characters are. One of the characters is also upside down. So they're clearly in space. What we're seeing is this, the beanstalk coming up to them. And so a lot of people refer to this card as Sea Source because that's what it says. But it's actually not Sea Source. Technically, as the flavor text indicates, with C being capitalized, it's SEA. And SEA stands for Space Elevator Authority because this is on the New Angeles Space Elevator. So the, the source means there's someone inside the Space Elevator Authority that, as Jerome Locke in the flavor text says, tipped us off to some suspicious data spikes, allowing a tag. So I think that's interesting. I mean, I obviously I wouldn't have included it here. And it gets into some of the uh, background of the game, which I'll touch on just briefly. The game is set in New Angeles. New Angeles is not Los Angeles. It's actually located in Ecuador because the beanstalk is on the equator. That's kind of where you want a, it's one of the best places to put a space elevator. A space elevator, I guess you may not know what that is. A space elevator is basically just a long cable that connects the earth to something in geosynchronous or orbit, you know, I think probably thousands of miles long, right? Uh, usually an asteroid is the idea that you'd have in geosynchronous orbit. And then once you're connected, it's much easier to move things up and down to get things up into orbit because you just run it up this cable as opposed to boosting it up with a rocket. In the game, they've picked this location at Volcan Cayambe, which is an actual place. It's a volcano in Ecuador. And basically it's been annexed. I think, it, I think it's considered to be part of the United States, New Angeles. 
I was going to share uh, maybe a couple details from the Worlds of Android book that I have, but since they devoted 10 pages to it, and it's in very small type and three columns a page, well, I don't have an hour or two to read that whole thing to you right now. turn over to your left side, trying to find a comfortable position on this ratty couch. The metal bars are digging painfully into your side. A few feet from you, you hear the powerful, endless whirring of a half dozen computer fans. You'd hoped your brain would eventually tune out the noise and you'd fall asleep. Police sirens zip by every few minutes with distressing regularity. There's no way you'll be able to sleep like this. Might as well open your eyes. You force your eyes open, ticking in your surroundings. You feel a pang of anxiety in your gut as you realize you aren't in your apartment. Your brain takes a moment to kick into gear, reminding you of your situation. 24 hours ago, you were sleeping soundly in your own home. A female voice awoke you, announcing through a loudspeaker that your apartment complex was to be demolished on order of the Wayland Consortium. Her speech was precise, her word choice deliberate. No doubt she had perfected her script after delivering it for years. For some reason, her closing statement stuck with you. It's not personal. Urban renewal is a necessity of the modern world. It's always someone's home. Yours is no different. You grabbed what belongings you could as the construction android set the explosive charges. Moments later, you were homeless. A friend of a friend agreed to take you in. Some girl who everyone knows as Mac. She agreed to let you crash on her couch while she was away. She never explained why she was away. You didn't care to ask. What should you do now? Getting up from the couch would be a good start. This is the first two pages in the really interesting website, Why I Run. Uh, programmed by, not be able to pronounce his username right, Nagnazul. And what it is, is uh, it's a Netrunner-themed choose-your-own-adventure game, basically. It's created with, uh, there are these, it's in, interactive fiction, more technically speaking, created with a tool called Twine that many interactive fiction games are created with. And so what you can do is you can go to this website, you read the text, and then you're given a choice. Well, on the first page, your only choice is to open your eyes. On the second page, your only choice is to get up from the couch. But as you go along, uh, you have various choices that you can make. And eventually, you get it to a point where you're basically playing a game of Netrunner. And the way that Nagnazul uh, has written 
the game, you know, he provides some sort of uh, plausible explanations for why things are the way they are. Like, when did you take a click to do something? Well, you take four hours to do it, and he explains why it took four hours or what you're doing for that four hours. Diesel makes an appearance, and it's literally on fire. And, yeah, and you actually run the game. And it's and you see lots of different references to cards, mostly in the core set. And, you know, they function just like they would in in the actual game. It is a really neat thing to give to to show someone who is somewhat interested in the game, especially if they're interested in the theme, because it really pulls you into the theme. If you were to play this online game first and then play the game in person or, you know, on Jinchaki or Retechi, I think in many ways the game thematically and conceptually would make a lot more sense. So it's a really well done interactive fiction, choose-your-own-adventure type game. I highly recommend it, and I'll provide a link in the show notes. This has been the Research Station segment for this episode. Many of the cards discussed in this week's episode will be linked in the show notes. Music is provided by Alexi Action. Uh, The website for the show is netrunner2.1.com. That's number two, number one, but point is spelled out. Right now, that's just redirecting to the Reboot Project homepage. If I have time to put up a basic website, I will try to do that just to have the show notes up there. You can play the Reboot Project online at retechie.fun. You can contact me on Discord or BoardGameGeek or Reddit. My username is Auberman. Or you can send me an email to anreboot2.1. There, the point is a decimal point at gmail.com. Our AstroScript pilot program this time is the last segment from the core set, which is NBN, just NBN. There's only three runners and four corps. In case you haven't noticed, the reason the order I've been doing this has been paralleling the uh, deluxe boxes. So NBN was by itself with the three many factions, and they don't exist yet. Thanks for listening. NBN. Someone is always watching. The largest media conglomerate in the world is NBN, which at various times in the company's history has stood for Network Broadcast News, Net Broadcast Network, and Near Earth Broadcast Network. Now simply known as NBN, The corporation is headquartered right on Broadcast Square in New Angeles after relocating from Sansan in the early 30s. NBN also has offices and broadcast equipment along the entire length of the New Angeles Space Elevator, particularly at Midway Station and the Terminal Space Station, known as the Castle. NBN owns or operates five of the 10 top-rated content streams worldwide, from music to 3D, news broadcasting to sitcoms, classic movies to interactive senses, NBN does it all.
NBN produces or licenses more content every day than a human being could consume in a year and boasts sophisticated secretary software agents to aid the consumer in locating the highest quality content that best matches his user profile. NBN's revenue streams are as complex as the web of network and broadcast infrastructure it owns. Its broad array of content and sophisticated, user-friendly delivery systems have garnered NBN an enormous number of subscribers at various membership levels in a variety of media markets. By collecting and collating viewership information and habits, NBN is also the world's leading media and marketing research firm, with zettabytes of information on such subjects as the buying habits of 30-year-old college-educated single mothers. NBN can sell this data to other corporations and also provide precision-targeted advertising to that same subscriber list. NBN-produced advertising uses psychographic profiling and the latest neuroscience and brain-taping techniques to promote message penetration and brand retention. The market dominance of NBN means that in most markets, even non-subscribers must use NBN-owned infrastructure to access the network at all. As a result, a large percentage of data and media in all of human society passes through NBN. Privacy advocates worry that NBN has too much access and control over communications and media, and condemn NBN for its cooperation with repressive Mediterranean regimes. Some worry that NBN is using its wealth of data for purposes more nefarious than advertising, and that there is a reason why no antitrust laws were ever enforced against the corporation by U.S. or world governments. NBN is a model of corporate efficiency, agile and responsive to an ever-changing marketplace. It does more than simply read the market. It steers it. <laughs>